refresh my memory. What happens when neither one of them talks? Never happened before. Never happened before. All right! If they won't tell us where she is, do them, both of them! Just kill them now! So gullible! <laughs> Bring her here. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 115 and 116, which begin with the Deacon invading Helen's personal space and end with Helen reminding the Mariner that she cannot breathe underwater. A fact that I'm sure the Mariner tends to forget sometimes, although maybe not. I like the idea of the Mariner using his underwater abilities to just escape the world. Just go down where it's wetter, down where it's... Better. Under the sea. Under the sea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> of course, that's exactly the kind of commotion that the Mariner has no interest in. Mm -hmm. If the Mariner went down to salvage, and suddenly he was surrounded by sea creatures, and they were playing instruments and singing songs, he would nope right out of there. Leave it all behind. Yeah, he really would. Do you think maybe if he encountered that scene as a child, when children are typically more open to whimsy and fancy, that maybe he would have stayed with them and never come back? Oh, probably. I mean, we haven't gone over it, but I've been hinting at it for a long time now. The Mariner has had a really crappy childhood, so any sort of escape would have been very welcome to him. Yeah. Although, while the Mariner does have... Seemingly a duplicate respiratory system that works with water. You would still need to eat. Mm -hmm. And yes, you can eat underwater, but I'm not really sure. Could he stay underwater all the time, forever and ever? Right. I'm not really sure about that. You can eat underwater if you come up to the surface, put something in your mouth, and then you're chewing it and swallowing it underwater. But if you were trying to actively eat underwater i'm not yeah. sure how that would work a couple of things would get in your way one the water solubility of whatever it is that you're eating yeah you're not gonna have any sandwiches exactly two is also consuming seawater at the same time another question does seawater bother him yeah well i would say yes because he still distills his own pee so if the salt water didn't adversely affect the system he wouldn't be doing that so he couldn't stay underwater indefinitely because he would dehydrate. Yes. Ironically. <laughs> we puzzled that one out. So we kick off this week with the deacon. He is talking to Helen. He says, but you know something? I don't think you're going to tell me, are you, huh? Too bad. The deacon leans over to the mariner and says, come on, A, what do you say? She's not your kind. You don't even have a kind. And Helen smartly observes that if the mariner were to spill the beans about where Enola is that the deacon would just kill them both. I know that this is a line that needs to be said for our sake, just to make sure that we all understand that they get what they're up against, making sure we're all on the same page. The Mariner is quite a bit more savvy and world-weary than she is. He knows that. He doesn't need to be told. So what that says to me is that the situation is so plain that even Helen is able to observe 
that this isn't a situation where they're just going to be let go. Because if the Mariner said it, of course the Mariner would know that the pirates are treacherous and they're not going to keep their word. But the fact that Helen can see it, oh, this ruse that the pirates are playing at, it's not very effective because it's so transparent. I feel like you're being sarcastic. That's just my tone. I'm going to let you be sarcastic. That's fine. From the smoker's point of view, they have no reason to leave anybody alive. Uh-huh. They have absolutely zero motivation to leave any of this. Okay, worst case scenario. Neither of them tell her where the girl is. They torch the boat. The boat sinks. And they kill the Mariner and Helen. So they're dead and gone in the water. And as the boat is sinking, Enola drowns with the boat. Well, you know what? You can still read her back. (laughs) The worst case scenario would be that her body burns to the point where they cannot read her back. Hmm. I think it's important to remember, as we discussed last week, they have not torn the boat apart yet. Not properly, no. They've done a cursory search. They've been really lazy about it, and they were hoping to take the easy way out. Sure, kill Helen and the Mariner, but then you've got to spend who knows how long going through every inch of this boat, tearing off panels and ripping things out and spending all of this time and energy when it would have been so much easier if they had just told you. That's annoyance that the deacon is trying to spare himself from. Yeah, spare himself. But you're right. He does threaten, swearing by Poseidon, that he will chorch the mariner's boat. And this seems like such an odd threat. You've already threatened to kill them. And then you are following that up with a threat to torch their boat. So do you burn the boat and make them watch the boat burn and then kill them? Or do you burn the boat and then leave them alive, thereby nullifying your earlier threat? We have a bit of a Hermione situation going on here. Thank you for saying that, because that's exactly what I just thought of. That she is going to go to bed before Harry and Ron think of another way to get them killed, or worse, expelled. Mm. What it does for both Hermione and the Mariner slash the Deacon is it brings to a point where their priorities are. The worst thing that could happen to Hermione is that she gets expelled from Hogwarts. Like, that is just absolute shame, ruin your life. You can die, but then you're just dead. Like, it's kind of the easier way out of the two from the point of view of these two people. And same thing for the Mariner. If you kill him, you kill him. Then he's dead and we're done. But if you torch his boat, then he has to see his beloved object destroyed and then have nothing. And that's a lot harder than just dying. Yeah. I want to jump into the book here. It handles this threat rather interestingly. And I hope you see what I mean by that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, the deacon said gently. Then he again leaned close to the mariner and almost whispered, If you don't tell me, I swear to Poseidon I'll torch your boat. The foul-breathed threat should have enraged the mariner. Instead... A peaceful calm settled upon him like a comforting blanket. The wretched, one-eyed smoker chieftain had put things in sudden focus for him. There were humans in Waterworld who deserved worse than slaughter, but there were others who were worthy of life. Looking past the deacon's gun barrel, he trained his eyes on Helen, and her eyes stared back at him, hard at first, but she apparently recognized his change in attitude, and her eyes reflected a growing tranquility. In their shared silence, the mariner and the woman forged a new bond, no less strong for being unspoken. 
Perhaps the deacon sensed this too, or perhaps he had just realized he wasn't going to get an answer out of either of them. In any case, he drew back, taking the gun barrel away from their temples. But this wasn't respite. I really, really appreciate the specific information that he realized that there were other people in the world besides him. That's something that he has not exhibited thus far in the story. Exercising a little bit of empathy for someone who may not necessarily be his same specific species. Yes. I do kind of wish that was able to be expressed a little more clearly in the movie. Yeah. Because we don't have these plain written words of inner monologue that you're able to get in a book. Yeah, we're really stuck watching the expressions and silent acting of Kevin Costner and Gene Triplehorn as they look at each other, standing in solidarity against the Deacon. It's really hard to properly emote all that when you are covered in salt water and probably very uncomfortable clothing stuck in a tight shot like this. And I do sense some shared resolve in these moments when both of them are silent that do show that the Mariner, his motivation for silence is Enola, not just being uncooperative towards somebody who talks down to him. He doesn't crack when his boat is threatened. He is standing there silent for Enola. That does feel communicated. Hmm. What they make clear in the book is that the Mariner is now seeing that Helen and Enola are human, yes, but they are a different type of human than the smokers. I like what happens in this scene because it is the Mariner not being a terrible person. He seems to be standing firm with Helen, not against Helen. And I really like how this illustrates that, okay, they are going to be a team for this scene. They are going to work together to survive. And all of the stuff that came before, that's by the wayside now. It's in the past. They need to move forward and they need to have a strong unified front. Because I think the Mariner at the beginning of this movie, if this scene had happened way back then, he probably would have just handed them right over and say, hey, listen, I got them out of the atoll, but that's where the payment ended. Earlier in the day, that's exactly what could have happened. If he hadn't come under attack at the trading post... He was going to trade them away. And it's the same day. It's only a couple hours difference. Mm -hmm. But things have happened in these couple of hours. Yeah. If the deacon had just been willing to set aside the vendetta that he has against the Mariner for destroying the gas barge, he could have done all of this so much easier and not bait the Mariner into becoming more of a problem in the future. Yeah. But even though the deacon gets a little physical grabbing Helen by the back of the neck and tossing her down onto the netting, the Mariner stays resolute and refuses to give up Enola. And the Deacon is at a bit of a loss for what happens next, because usually, like we saw at the Atoll earlier in this movie, somebody talks. Oh, they can't wait to talk. Mm -hmm. Back at the Atoll, they couldn't talk fast enough. Right. Like, <laughs> the guy who ended up dying, well, they both ended up dying, but the guy who came in second... It wasn't because he stayed silent. It was because he just wasn't fast enough. Mm -hmm. I really love the way the deacon plays this conundrum that he has. Refresh my memory. What happens when neither of them talks? And the Nord, who is becoming more and more goofy as the movie goes along, 
Well, the more and more that he drinks. Yeah, never happened before. There is something about this that I really like. In a leadership role, the deacon is not afraid to admit that he doesn't know the next step. And this may have been a sarcastic question, but I think genuinely this doesn't really happen to him. He's used to everything going to plan and what he expected to happen doesn't happen. And so he needs to take a beat so that he can improvise the next step. Yes. And I really like that admission. In a leader, you're not always going to be right. You're not always going to be perfect. And your flock has the opportunity to respect you in a different way if you can admit that you're fallible. Hmm. I think him walking over to the Nord and saying, refresh my memory, I feel like that's not him admitting a shortcoming or floundering for an answer. I think he's putting on a bit of a show because of the way he portrays it, where he seems to saunter over and be like, refresh my... It's like he's doing a two-man roadshow type of thing. And then he very quickly says, all right, if they won't tell us where she is, do them, both of them, just kill them now. And he points his gun out. It seems to me that he's already got this, let's kill them both, because there's a very good chance that the girl is within airshot idea in his head. I do like that too. That he's putting on a show for Enola, because even though he can't see her, he's betting that she can hear him. And it's a genius plan, and it works so well. It absolutely works. And his delight at how well it works is rather charming. It's infectious. Yes, it is. And Enola pops so quickly out of her hiding place. The deacon is correct. Those kids, they're so gullible. So gullible. Seek and ye shall receive, and that's their daily sermonette, which he lets out a roaring laugh to follow. (laughs) I love it. I follow a subreddit called Kids Are Effing Stupid, and this clip, you just upload it on there and get a couple of upvotes, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what a dumb kid. He didn't actually kill your surrogate parents. Come on. Why you gotta be like that, Anola? What are you doing? Okay, in her defense, she has no reason to think he didn't. (laughs) But then again, if he did, what is she gonna do about it? Right. Is she gonna pop out and... Go all ninja on them. Right, she has no power to stop him. Yeah. As we see, she gives herself up, and he calls for their deaths anyways. Mm -hmm. Like, get rid of the both of them, torch the boat. We got what we wanted because, like I said in the beginning, no motivation to do anything otherwise. So they carry Enola past Helen and the Mariner, and the Helen is reaching out, trying to grab for Helen. The Mariner is sticking pretty close to the mast, and in the book... It describes him reaching back and grabbing one of his wrist straps that he has on the mast that are attached to a counterweight. He's already standing back there, fiddling with the ropes, looking for an opportunity to spring a trap that we're about to see him, well, utilize. All right. He's also pulling Helen back, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they've already got their hands on Enola. There's nothing necessarily keeping them safe from both still getting shot. It's a protective move. If he didn't care about Helen, he would just let her attack. They would probably shoot her Mm -hmm. right then and there, but he protects her by holding her back. The deacon passes Enola to a couple of guys standing right behind, and I would like to point out real quick that one of them is wearing a pot on his head. (laughs) It's like a camping style pot. Honestly, it looks cast iron, which is very very heavy. heavy. What the heck are you doing? 
And he's got the handle under his chin as a strap. And it's got the three legs sticking out the top. It's delightful. It reminds me of Devo. Even though Devo wear the red buckets and not cast iron or anything like that. We saw the Mariner earlier with the jazz CDs. Maybe some Devo records survived (laughs) into the apocalypse. And this guy just loves Whip It. Maybe. (laughs) So the Nord arrives. He went down below deck and he found some of the Mariner's magazine. In the book, the Mariner is horrified to realize that they found some of his magazines. He does not like the idea of that. But the Deacon is so enamored with the images because they are depictions of dry land. It's funny to watch him turn the magazine over and he's agog at it. This is another instance of the Deacon displaying real emotion where he says i don't have the words to describe this this is so amazing to look at even though they are lovely pictures but they portray the same thing as the golf resort pictures he's got (laughs) green rolling hills and trees like it's nothing new yeah it's the same it's not like it's mountains full of fall foliage or snow or cities or towns. It's a little white church mm-hmm. on green rolling hills. The man loves a green rolling hill. Yeah. I get such a kick out of how eagle-eyed viewers will most likely notice that when he has the magazine open, it's that white church and rolling hills. But then when it flips around the shot and we're looking at the deacon holding the magazine, the page that he's got flipped over, he's got the magazine flipped in half and it's not these pictures. So yeah. they just slapped dashed a couple of these together and i'm sure that's exactly how it is in the theatrical cut because they're not going to pay that close of attention they just need to be showing off how verdant and green and magnificent these vistas are these aren't photographs these are paintings i think they're paintings um i don't know they look kind of photography to me i know photographs from the 60s and 70s are not of the quality that we see now so perhaps it is but I don't know. They look a little just off. <laughs> yeah, I think they're just old. Okay. Yeah. So the deacon turns Enola over. He's got her strung up upside down. He looks at the map and then he turns and he says, that mean anything to you, Nord? As if Nord is just going to like, oh, say, yeah. oh, yeah, this is that and that is that. I know exactly where Dryland is now. Yeah. <laughs> but the deacon is not deterred by the negative answer from the Nord. He says, all right, we'll just figure it out back at the D's and calls for everyone to withdraw. Yeah, they're still on enemy territory, even Mm -hmm. though it has been vanquished. It's still enemy territory. It's not the best place to be working on this stuff. We'll just take it all back to where we're safe and work on it there. And of course, the Nord wants to know what to do with Helen and the Mariner. And the deacon very dismissively says, do them both and then torch the boat. Yeah, of course. Because why wouldn't you, right? Right. (laughs) The mariner, hating this idea, reaches back to the mast, loops a length of rope around the smoker that's attending them, and then sends the guy skyward. The book describes this as a reverse hanging situation, which makes sense because usually the loop goes around your neck and then you drop. And this is the loop goes around in the neck and then he goes up. With all of the smokers looking at their comrade hanging from the rafters, the Mariner takes this opportunity to grab Helen and dive into the water next to the Trimoran. Back into the book again. 
The deacon says, Do them both. And the boat? The Nord replied, Torch it. The Nord frowned. It's a hell of a boat, deacon. It's contaminated, unclean, fishy. Besides, I promised I'd do it, and I always keep my promises, now do it. In one swift motion, the mariner looped the enlarged wrist lanyard over the smoker guard's neck and kicked a lever, sending the counterweight plummeting, and the smoker guard rocketing upward, up the mast, caught in the wrong way gallows. The mariner grabbed Helen by the wrist and yanked her along as he ran to the bow and dove over the side. The Nord's gunfire blasting the air they had vacated. I really appreciate that the question of torching versus commandeering the boat was brought up because, yeah, it's a great boat. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of stuff on that boat. Yeah, there is a lot of salvage to be had. I think the important thing to consider with the Nord and the Trimoran is that the Trimoran must be torched by order of the Deacon, but he did not give a time frame. The orders were kill Helen and the Mariner, burn the boat. And so if they kill Helen and the Mariner quickly, they can spend as much time as they want ransacking and looting the boat, and then they can burn it. Obviously, the time frame is a little condensed here, so they start spreading gasoline around almost instantly, but we don't have to worry about actual burning until next week. Right. I do like how the Nord is able to recognize the value of the Trimoran, though. Yeah. The Nord has a history of coveting what the Mariner has. <laughs> From the boots? Yeah. To the boat? To the dirt? And he is not dissuaded by this cleanliness issue that the Deacon is. The Nord doesn't care what the Mariner is, that he's part human, part fish. Yeah. He doesn't care. It doesn't bother me that in the movie they don't give the Deacon a longer explanation of why to torch the boat. I think the little bits and pieces we get of he's a mutant, we gotta kill him, are enough. I like how it is included in the book, because of course the book is a little more long form, but I'm not upset they don't have it in the movie. It is an interesting tidbit, but it's not necessary. You gotta get rid of it, because everything he's touched is contaminated. Which... I don't know what they're expecting. Are they expecting like, oh, he's got the fishy flu. So we got to <laughs> burn out the uncleanliness and purge the sickness. Helen and the Mariner, they splash down into the water. And of course, all of the smokers are shooting around them. The Mariner very quickly says, we have to go under. And Helen stops him to say, no, I can't breathe like you. Plenty of episodes of the Mythbusters have taught me that if you shoot a bullet into the water, it is not going to go that far. You do not need to dive that deep in order to survive gunfire. And in fact, in the book, they don't immediately go underwater or hide against the side of the boat like they do in the movie. They dive down and they go into a bit of a wet well in the hull that okay. Helen didn't know about before. Like, you remember back at the beginning of the movie where the is like, there's holes in the hull big enough to breathe. They go into one of those. Right. And the whole reason they have to dive down even deeper is because... The smokers hear them talking in the wet well and start shooting around them again oh. and force them down into the water. Wow, that feels kind of dumb of them to be talking. The explanation in the book is a lot longer than it is here in the movie. So Helen says, Enola's up there, she whispered. I know, nothing we can do right now. He gave her a steely-eyed look. We have to go under. Under? Way under. And stay under. She felt dizzy. How? I can't breathe under there like you. He touched her face, a surprisingly tender gesture. I'll breathe for us both. The raiders must have heard Helen and the Mariner talking because suddenly bullets were triggering down blindly alongside the central hull. He nodded to her, and she followed his lead, 
ducked under the waterline. And we get to talk next week all about underwater shenanigans. <laughs> shenanigans is right. Yeah. So we're going to put a pin in the situation here for this week. Come back next time. The Mariner will take Helen underwater for some unorthodox rescue breathing. The Smokers will destroy the Trimoran. And Kevin Costner will do his best to express devastating sadness. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 58. See you next time.